Now, with us in studio this morning are Irene Sands, barrister, practising on the Eastern Circuit, Sheila Brady, security analyst at SAR Consultancy, Kevin Doyle, group head of news at INM, Katie Hayward, political sociologist at Queen's University Belfast, and Owen Fahey, head of responsible investing KBI uh, Global Investors. Uh, I think I'll go to um, you you first on this own since you're a money man. <laughs> um, do ha, explain to me what the procedure is about audits and doing all that kind of thing, because there were amazing discrepancies. It would appear. Yeah, it's not the first case where we've seen auditors starting to be asked serious questions uh, about yeah. their oversight. I mean, not just in Ireland, but in many countries uh, where I think investors, shareholders and in this case, stakeholders are asking very serious questions about how auditors oversee accounts in general. It's a complicated set of arrangements and, 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 and to be to be upfront from the start, I'm not a chartered accountant, I'm not an expert in this, but I can give you some idea at least. The, the, the Basically, one of the things you have to remember, auditors are responsible to the shareholders, um, or in the case of FAI, I don't suppose there are shareholders, but to the members, I suppose. So they're not technically supposed to work for management. So, for example, if you, uh, in the case of a public company that has shareholders and so on, it isn't actually management that appoint the auditors that has to go to a vote at the company's AGM and it's decided directly by the shareholders. And, and in, in practice, that's a formality because in, in reality, management picked the auditors. But it emphasises the, the symbolism, I suppose, is that auditors work for the shareholders or the members. They don't work for the management. So that's the theory, at yeah, least. But now, I presume you can only work with the information you're given. Uh, well, this is it. Well, yes and no. Um, so so in any annual report, if, if, if anyone is sad enough to read, you know, the, the 416-page annual report, reports of big companies or whatever uh, and no normal person outside the financial world would but there's always a page or two on auditors responsibilities and directors responsibilities so at the beginning of the accounts you can pick up any set of accounts and you'll see it and basically there is a list of things that directors are responsible for the management if you like are responsible for yeah. and there's a list of things that auditors are responsible for and anyone can pick that up and read it broadly speaking um, directors are and management if you want to put it more generally are responsible for managing the accounts and, and preparing this the set of accounts. And auditors are responsible, I paraphrase this and someone will argue, but but in, in general they're responsible for checking those and making sure on a reasonable basis they can't be expected to check every check that came into a bank account and every payment that went out, but they're supposed to do spot checks they're supposed to do occasional checks they're supposed to look at particularly sensitive well, issues yeah, for example. If you take the Deloitte gave solvency warnings on the 2017 and 2018 um, return. Why wasn't that acted on? And if who would act on it, if you know what I mean? Well, there's a number of people that can. Now, my understanding, by the way, was that the solvency and, and, and please correct me, but my understanding is those solvency warnings were given now only after they restated the accounts, but but, but maybe they were given uh, some time ago. I wasn't aware of that if they were. Uh, in general, if you give a solvency warning, what you're saying to anybody that reads the accounts is this company 
could go bust in certain circumstances or this organisation depending yeah. on whether they get a new bank loan depending on whether somebody rolls over their finance or whatever uh, and in that case the warning is mostly to creditors actually because creditors have a stake in a, in a company as well and auditors have some responsibilities to them as well because if it, it's a warning to creditors that actually this company they think is safe and secure might actually not be and that's why it goes out there now obviously regulators then may take an interest the revenue commissioners may take an interest in that Cab. kind of case in this case in extreme well in extreme cases and, and there wouldn't be many I don't think where Cab will get involved but but it looks like according to the newspapers today they are getting involved because of the seriousness and the scale of the restatements of the accounts and, and, and the various issues that have arisen that would be rare I mean you shouldn't think that every time a company No uh, I was, I was really accounts. taken aback when I saw the Cab were getting yeah, involved Yeah so, so uh, you know instinctively without knowing the first thing about it really other than what we're in the papers instinctively yeah. you might think that it must be pretty serious if the Cab is getting involved I don't know but 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 instinctively that would be what one would think when you when you see okay. something like that. Sheila? Yes, I when I read uh um, John Mooney's and Mark Ty's article uh, that was the first thing I thought of when I could see that the decision had been made to raise it above the Garda National Economic Bureau to CAB it showed not only a seriousness but a real complexity and CAB because they're kind of a multi-agency task force um, they have that experience and they have that proven track record of working really well together yeah. um, and they are one of like a globally recognised success story exactly yes yeah. so it really shows that this has been taken seriously but it wouldn't go to them if it didn't need to be taken seriously right are you interested in in football or are you just a, a hurler on the ditch sorry if you'll pardon, <laughs> pardon the, the way I, I, I put it uh, Kevin I mean there was an awful lot of talk going around the football world that all was not well. For years and years, Marion, and, and those of us who've sat in newsrooms, uh, any newsroom in Dublin, be it in RTE or The Independent or wherever, have known for years and years that there was something not... Everything wasn't as it seemed, let's put it that way, with the FAI. Um and uh, the truth of it is, uh, yes, I am a football. I've gone to matches all over the world following the Irish team. Um, and, and there is a sad reality at the back of this, that, that John Delaney was almost this cult character that the fans loved to hate. And then he'd buy everybody on the train and create a beer. And they'd sing their heads off and, and have a ball. And have a ball, unaware that how that duck create a beer was probably being paid, was influencing on, on, on grassroots football. And how it, so there has been suspicions there all along and there's a theme going through I think a lot of the, the, the articles today and the, the, that the various sports writers have written where they're basically saying we were trying to get at this and and to be fair and I think Eamon Dunphy did it with you yesterday yeah. put the hands up and said we couldn't get there and when Mark Ty wrote what seemed like a somewhat strange story about a hundred grand loan you kind of go what's to that about the FAI. From, from John the, Delaney yeah, yeah. but that opened Pandora's box and I wonder if John Delaney hadn't gone down the legal route to try and stop that would everybody have gone hold on how big of a deal is this because that's what then was the first thread and ever since that I mean the threads in the papers today to actually try and take in all the elements of this story now I don't think it's even possible to do but um, John Green has a good piece in the sports pages of the Cinder where he talks about how um, a lot of different sports writers were trying to get at, at this and every time they'd raise something controversial they'd either get a phone call from uh, the FAI headquarters from John Delaney or somebody else saying whoa back up now that's not fair that's not reasonable you're not being good to soccer uh, or else the, the, the lawyer's letter would arrive saying look push this much further and we'll come after you and, and 
you know, I, I've sat in the newsroom a long time and I was aware that that was what was going on. And there's a whole other row we could have around defamation laws in this country and the yeah, fact that a solicitor's yeah. letter here carries a hell of a lot more weight sure does. than elsewhere in Europe. But it was all of that. And one of the points just in, in that piece I thought that was kind of very interesting, he referred to a, an article that um, a writer called Tommy Conlon wrote about a year ago, but he compared... Um, the other big sporting organisations in this country and how they had progressed over the past decade. And he was making the point... This is that John Green. This is John yeah, Green's piece. Here, yeah. And he's in 2006, the GAA have a, had a turnover of 30 million. And by 2017, they had more than doubled that to 65. Uh, the IRFU in 2007 were at 48 million. They'd almost doubled it by 2017. They were up to 85 million for a turnover. By comparison, the FAI in that 10 years had gone from a 45 million euro turnover to 49 and he was questioning uh, at the time why... Well, well, could it not be related, in fairness, to the fact that we had a pretty non-performing national team and the way the money used to flow in was because they got full houses for matches and matches and matches in the good old days and when they built the stadium, they didn't manage to sell off their... um, the advantage packages, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, and we did get to Euro 2012, and we didn't have a huge amount of um, success with the senior team. After that, it has been kind of a, a a bit of a trudge for many of the fans going around since that. But I suppose the point was asking was, um, despite making the comparison that yes, the FAI had some of the best paid officials, and they had this perception of the Blazers that in some ways the JA, for example, didn't have. But the point was that after that article appeared twelve months ago, the phone calls started and the threats of legal letters started because it was it was seen as unfair. But actually, it's just commentary. That's what what the media do you question these things and the FAI have the right to defend them Yeah, but they have to be able to take the questioning Yeah Irene At a very basic level so I, I'm, I'm not a football follower I'm, I'm not particularly uh, FAI orientated um, but th- this story at a very baseline like the FAI yesterday or, or was it Friday in, like they're running at a debt of 55 million like that's absolutely astronomical and when I was reading into it this morning and yesterday and it, it's discovered now in terms of the audit that's happening the 2016 books it was indicated in some of the papers yesterday had originally recorded a profit of 2.3 million when in fact the profit was 66,000 now I was gobsmacked by that and then I went on to the next line which was the 2017 books showed a profit of 2.8 million but in fact when they were readjusted it was a loss of 2.9 million so that's a swing of 5.6 million now we can all make a mistake adding and subtracting or carrying a 10 when you shouldn't but 5.6 millions worth of a swing it, it beggars belief so I think it ties back into what um, Sheila was saying in terms of cab coming in in terms of the complexity and the the intricacy of what's going to be involved here Yeah, this is a much deeper and I would suggest probably a much more prolonged issue than even 2016 and 17 whether it's all under Delaney's reign at 15 who in the last 15 years who knows um, I suppose that's something that will unfold in due course but I think it's a very positive step that CAB are, com- are becoming involved because I think they're a very trusted institution. And I think like that, they are that multi-agency task force that people have confidence in. So I think that's actually the first thing. I think right. public confidence is going to be one of the main things in this. But they're going to go into the governance. They're going to go into whether, in fact, there was taxable income there that yeah. was unpaid, etc. Um, so they're go- there's much more than just debts of 55 million. There's actually, as she says, 
a complexity to it which warrants CAB's intervention at this stage. Okay, Katie, your folks are doing rather well in the north, the um, <laughs> the footballers. <laughs> they might stand in our way in yeah, a few yeah, months' time. Yeah. Um, how do you perceive this? I mean, there's so many articles today about it, FAI crisis, FAI paid off debts with sponsors, money boys in green deep in red, Delaney's chickens finally come home to roost, directors drop the ball. I mean, it, and that's only some of them. Absolutely. I mean, there's a really good piece in the, Sunday, in the Business Post by Rushing Burke. Uh, the headline is, I was shocked, to be honest. And it's a really nice um, um, outline of sort of ordinary people's reaction to all of this, most particularly the volunteers. Um, um, and uh, interim board member John Early says, you know, I've members with two years grants unpaid and people working underage soccer are all volunteers. And it's those people who are sort of rightly feeling betrayed and shocked mm. by all this mm. story coming out. Just I, I, I yes, think so. that one of, one of the lessons, if we look forward a little bit, is that if you take an organisation with the turnover that you ran through, the, 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 what was it, 49 million, I think, is the mm. turnover you mentioned, mm. that's a big company. That's the, you know, I say company, it's a big organisation. Uh, yeah. It can't be run by amateurs. Uh, and that's sometimes the difficulty, whether that's the GA, whether it's FAI, or whether it's a myriad of other organisations. If you, if you have that amount of money flowing through your books, you have to have the highest standards, the same standards of corporate governance and auditing and everything else that would go with a company. You, ha- you should have an independent audit committee consisting of experts in the area. You should have independent directors. And we know there's a huge schmazzle now about appointing four independent directors that for some reason I don't understand they still haven't appointed. I don't, I, I don't, I don't that. understand that either. Yeah, that, that's going on. But, but I would also say to anybody that's involved in any amateur organisation out there that handles large amounts of money, let this be a lesson. You cannot allow people who are doing their best and uh, and but but have no particular financial expertise or no governance expertise to run very large entities because these kind of things will happen again because there are bad people out in the world who can take advantage of of amateur organisations that have large amounts of money that will happen from time to time yeah but you get the feeling that the GAA are just rock steady I would get that feeling to be honest and and the IRFU yeah uh, you you would have that sense, but but and, and I don't know enough about it to be sure. But my sense is that they tend to bring in experts who are members, rather than members who are who are uh, shall we say self somewhat self appointed or who who, yeah, who come but, up through the political system. Or yeah, well, I mean, and yourself, by the way, you know it's not that long since since that the, the, around this table you would have been talking about the Olympic Council of Ireland, yes. you know, whatever it was called. Then I think they've changed their name, Olympic Federation. They call themselves now, is that right? And they've been through a complete restructuring. New start, but there too, they they had an organisation that was heavily dominated by one or two people, or one, I suppose you could argue, uh, and a lot of question marks arose. And again, you maybe had a, a lack of professional expertise and proper governance, which which allowed uh, undue influence by by one or two people. And, and Roy Keane used to refer to them as the Blazers. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and there has always been, I think, a Blazer perception with the mm. the FAI that maybe isn't there with the other organisations. And the question is, yeah. What happens now and how do you get back to the point where the government will start giving them money again because they desperately, desperately need that money? But the Olympic movement is probably an example of that because as I understand it, mm. you know, I don't follow it terribly close, but I understand that they've reformed, they've reorganised themselves. I think they've got they've their funding changed restored. Their name. They changed I wonder their name. if the FAI should change their name. Well, it couldn't hurt, could it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the brand certainly isn't worth anything. I wouldn't have thought at this stage. You know? <laughs> Sheila? Yeah, I think branding is such an important element of this it's you know if the brands are are tarnished and I think we see that in trees uh, uh, kind of removal of their sponsorship 
like that they're very aware that being associated with toxic brands is not something that companies want to align businesses to How anymore. How do they go about it? Well, we found, which is was striking to us because we're in kind of security and risk assessments, that yeah. we've been increasingly asked by large sale companies that are putting money more into the development space to actually risk assess potential uh, reputational damage of who they align to. So I think corporate companies are becoming much more aware of this, um, the potential when they give money to, you know, in sponsorship deals. What are the potential risks that can be associated with aligning themselves with? um, On the level of integrity. Exactly, yes. Like how could it impact their corporate strategy going forward and it's not even short term it's really long term strategic intent they're looking at Um, and they look at these things like audit reports they go into that much detail they look at social media to see what are the people saying about these brands that there is yeah but but social media can't really be your guide well it's one element of of many others that they use and in many cases they do find indicators of these you know historical discussions before they actually come to the point we're at today but that really good brand um, awareness is like for aligning to a brand is watching to see how people's rhetoric or discussions about other brands are developing over time and they can uh, let's say pull back their their sponsorship based on you know perception rather than an illegality because that's what they're concerned with. They're concerned with what things look like, not actually what things are. Uh-huh. Right. Crazy world we live in. Huh? Yeah, it, it was a shock to us when we were asked to do it, to be honest with you. But it's it becoming increasingly a requirement by, don't, don't ask me what drove it in the first place. Yeah. But it's certainly coming from the businesses themselves. Mind you, politics is a place where perceptions uh, matter quite a bit as well. Uh, and we'll move on to it in a moment. But uh, first of all, I'll, I'll go back. Uh, to you, just on Veradkar's statement mm. about helping the women's, I gather that does not go through the... They, they effort, bypass it. They, they, buy- they get money more directly. And, and I suppose that they're, they're, the government are holding out a millions here. And it's, it's kind of funny because you can imagine some football fans this morning going, oh God, all we need now is Leo Veradkar getting involved after the couple <laughs> of weeks he's had politically um, as, as the saviour. But the truth of the matter is uh, the FAI are going to need a bailout Somehow they they're being propped up by UEFA at the minute. UEFA will not do that forever, and I don't. Do we think, know to what scale? I think it's eight million, but I I, I that's right. off the top of my head now. I can't swear to that, um, but that will keep it going for so long. At some stage, as Sheila pointed out, the sponsors are not going to be queuing up here. And even if they do, if somebody decides, do you know what, we're getting in for a cheap buck because the value of the FAI brand to be associated with now is quite loose. Our chances of getting uh, to the European Championships are very much up in the air. Um, And as I say, Northern Ireland might stand in our way for that. So uh, I think at some point this is probably going to fall back on us, the taxpayers and the government. And there'll be an argument that we bailed out the banks we'll have to bail out football because people like football a hell of a lot more than the banks and I think that's where Leo Varadkar is going with that today. It's, good. it's an interesting way uh, of putting it. Um, I think there are three or four uh, headlines on Murphy's Law today and they go through Dara Murphy, Owen Murphy, Verona uh, Murphy. It looks like they've had a very bad week. Uh, a bad couple of weeks and, and it's 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 
almost funny that they're all Murphys in in a way. You'd be kind of thinking if you're Finnick Gale. What did Gale, Boris Johnson say? <laughs> Boris Johnson wanted a Taoiseach and they all called Murphy. Well, yeah. let's maybe I won't finish that, but it, it is a troubling time um, for the government. But I, I think is interesting in all the papers is that there is a very big acceptance now that what happened with Owen Murphy and Dara Murphy, particularly in the past week, has expedited our general election. We were all kind of sitting back happy enough thinking, right, April, May, we'll get that far. We'll get the cold winter over us and we'll be ready for an election. It doesn't look like that anymore. I think we're 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 back to February, March at this stage and, and still I, be cold. It'll still be cold, <laughs> it'll still be dark. Um and how it happens, well, two ways I think is is the the numbers are so tight now that it could absolutely happen by accident. And yeah. I, I heard my colleague John Downing, I think, on with uh, News at One during the week, all it would take is for one Fine Gaelor to go on the drink and <laughs> miss a vote and the whole thing could come crashing Surely down. Surely Fine Gaelors don't <laughs> go on the drink, I'm but, shocked. Um, so an accident could happen. But alternatively, um, Brexit is due to happen on the 31st. It looks like Johnson um, will get his well, yeah, some we'll sort of a majority. Yeah. So if Brexit happens on the 31st, the doll will only be two weeks back after the Christmas recess at that stage. All it will take, I think, at that stage is for Sinn Féin or Solidarity People for Profit, somebody to lob down a no-confidence motion in Simon Harris. And I don't see how Micheál Martin can hold his troops together again. Yeah. Well, if you come back to Owen Murphy, I mean, this is something that Colin McCarthy refers to an awful lot. Uh, that I saw today in the papers. I mean, there could be others. Uh, Colin Brophy objecting to 590 uh, units of accommodation, shall we say, whether they're apartments or housing or to let or whatever. And he's objecting to that as launching it. Angus O'Snothick is objecting to 992 uh, apartments. Or, and they will all bleed for the homeless. And it is a terrible thing. And... You might bleed a little bit like Owen Murphy. What can you do if everybody objects to everything? I see you nodding your head there, Katie. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there's um, interesting analysis more broadly about people's expectations of what politicians meant to do in their local constituencies um, and, uh, you know, objecting to large apartment developments is, is one part of that um, and yet coincide that with um, people's desires for the housing crisis to be addressed. Um, I mean, that's so a lot of accommodation. Blocked. Well, the you politicians know. generally then turn around and, and it does seem to be a really, really regular pattern of politicians objecting to big developments in their area. Uh, so it's a bit like sort of uh, reverse, uh, you know, this, the, not reverse, but, but nimbyism. You know, of course we want big housing and we want everybody to be housed, but just not in my backyard. Yeah, uh, the, the nimby Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And they'll all say, oh, well, I don't object to housing. I just object to that, that housing. I just object to that scheme. The, 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 roof, the, 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 the roofs are too high or it's too dense or it's not close enough to a bus route or there's one excuse after another. And, a re and reasonable people uh, reading the, the, these reports don't know enough really to know is this a complete excuse because uh, because they just don't want development in their area or is it reasonable well, enough don't. to object? They don't. But I think once you see a pattern of week in, week out, you see politicians objecting yeah. over and over and over again to developments. You start to get very cynical at that stage. You do, Irene? I'm going to take a, a slightly different stance to own. I'm, I'm going to disagree with him on that and say that so I'm living outside Drogheda and 
we are actually the complete opposite of saying we don't want development in our area. We are crying out for development in Drogheda. Um, and I know, which is a bit ironic, and for people in Loud, they'll understand what I mean, but we had a Dundalk TD, Peter Fitzpatrick, shouting for Drogheda, which is almost unheard of. Um, but he... I, d- I just <laughs> discovered the significance of identity between Drogheda oh, and Dundalk as <laughs> Because we refer to the woman coming back from... Yes, she's Dundalk. From Syria. Dundalk. Somebody said... Somebody said... Not Drada. Drada. Anyway. No, no, very two, two very different towns, Marion. Um, but to his credit, Dundalk man that he is, uh, TD Peter Fitzpatrick, asked the question of Owen Murphy in the Dáil um, only the other day as to why he was blocking the building of 4,000 new homes in Drada. 4,000? 4,000. Now, the, Drada is less than 45 minutes away from the capital, right? Where we, There was articles all during the week about how these commuter towns and commuter counties, you know, are growing increasingly more important because Dublin does not have the infrastructure to house everyone it needs to house. Yeah. Drogheda is more than happy and content to grow. It's actually Ireland's largest town. And what's stopping the development of this Is it larger than Dundalk? It's, it's, it's the, the whole country's largest town. Okay. And Swords is next. Okay. So I actually, and I double checked that, Dundalk is the primary town, but we are the largest town. Okay. Um, some might argue the better town. But anyway, um, <laughs> what is blocking the development of those 4,000 houses is a northern cross route road, essentially, which would link the motorway, the M1 motorway, the most used motorway to Dublin. Um, it would link that into Drogheda Port. And that road is the only thing that's blocking that building of those 4,000 houses. And when I was looking at the question... How, how, how so? Because there isn't the infra- there won't be the infrastructure to support the houses. All so right. without the road, people won't have the, the means literally to get in and out. Essentially, okay. The other baffling thing, and I have to say it as as a proud Drogheda lady, there's two towns in the country that are tolled in and out. One is Fermoy, and the other is Drogheda. So anyone entering Drogheda has to pay a toll. Anyone exiting Drogheda has to pay a toll, and that's a huge amount of people up and down the road to Dublin every single day, literally being told leaving their hometown. And we then have developers ready to build, and it's. Social and affordable housing is part of the criteria now if you want to get planning. And, and they have planning? And, and there's planning There's planning in place. There was a whole um, planning development uh, plan put together. Back This road is going back to 2004. That's what I looked up yesterday. It's going back to 2004. On board Planola approved, I think, in 2005. And we are now 15 years on. And the question is still being asked in the, in the doll as to why these houses aren't built and this road hasn't happened. And it's, what was the answer? None. None. There, there was no answer forthcoming. The, the question was asked and there's no answer forthcoming. And that was just before there was the motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy. But I would love to know the answer to that because there's 4,000 houses ready to go in Drogheda, which is only 45 minutes from Dublin. And, and it have, has a train link. And it has a, it's on the Dublin-Belfast route. It has a train service. Like, it, it beggars belief. And we have 10,000, in excess of 10,000 people homeless, a third of whom are children. It, I, I, I cannot understand what sort of absolutely acceptable reason the Minister has at this stage to be blocking developments like that. Does that surprise you, Kevin? Not really. I mean, every you could probably go to most towns in the country and you will find a story of some description. And a big part of the government's argument back against the Social Democrats over the no confidence motion was that they dug out Fine Gael desperately dug out and were circulating all over Leinster House um, some um, developments that Roisin Shortall as the Social Democrat TD had objected to. Um, they, they all do it because all politics is local at the end of it. And there are so many problems within the planning sphere and the red tape and all the rest of it. They cut down red tape here and then at 
something blocks it there um, and it's just not very simple in this country to do these things for whatever reason and maybe but it was too simple that, in the past Isn't that what governments are supposed to do? They're supposed to run the country you know and, and, and there's all this beating their hearts about the misery of the homeless and so on it, it, it's, it's nonsense I don't know if it's nonsense, although it does it does speak to one interesting point, which is in the the Sun Independent has a story where John Paul Phelan, the Minister of State, criticising all these uh, musicians and and movie stars for jumping on the bandwagon of homelessness, if we can call it that, and basically saying they know nothing about what they protest, um, and, and making the point that actually maybe they're getting their own little bit of limelight out of uh, these protests. So it's an interesting line of attack, I think. Right. Which, Sheila? I think there's two interesting pieces in that story because there, it's as if there's a, you know, who has the monopoly on speaking about homeless? Yeah. You know, if, if the, the if artists can't get into it, and you think of the culture of art in Ireland over the years, you know, politically sensitive topics have been dealt very well through drama and music. So there's that, you know, we have a tradition of it and is there a suggestion that that should be changed. And the other thing is we all know people um, within the, these conditions are a silenced voice. They don't have the opportunities to get... Exactly. Yeah. So actually having famous, it goes back to branding, having famous, well-known names behind it actually adds really to their plight, you know, to, to raise their plight. So I just couldn't understand why a Minister of State would come out and say that, you know, and criticise uh, key people that we all know and respect through, we'll say, the arts in Ireland yeah. taking on this uh, this ag- agenda as if they have a double agenda. I just thought it was a very interesting thing from an Irish cultural perspective. Okay. Just in terms of drawing the contrast, I suppose, between sort of the ministerial or the governmental approach to homelessness, it, I, I think everyone will have seen, if you're on social media, that the letter written by Father Peter McVerry into the Irish Times has been shared, I think, on every single platform. And he's an incredible man. He's an amazing man. But he wrote into the Irish Times the other day and he said that he had attended court with a homeless boy who was charged with theft of a bottle of orange to the value of a euro, a homeless man charged with theft of four bars of chocolate for three euro, and another homeless man was before the court charged with theft of two boxes of cigarettes. A TD on his way to or from his full-time job, very well-paid job in Brussels, stops by the doll to sign in and collect his full €51,600 expenses for his attendance. And I think that Peter McVerry has very succinctly, in a very short letter, nailed it. it. And that's the discrepancy between the two. Uh, Oh, and you were making the point about the rules mm. and you know he did nothing that wasn't within the rules apparently but the rules should be the minimum level I mean I think that's the point well first of all the rules can be wrong um, and, yeah, and I, I, think I, I, I understand you think there shouldn't be I, any I don't, rules I, what, what really annoys me is that we uh, elect people into a really responsible and important job and that they turn around and that then that the, 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 we so little credibility in them or they they have so little integrity in a way I mean I shouldn't generalise of course course about 160 different TDs and whatever but that we have to then put in place all these ridiculous rules about fobbing in and fobbing out and you get so much expenses for it depending on what day you turn up uh, and then and then we can't even trust them to vote the right way or, 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 or not vote the right in way the sorry but, 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 but that they even are there to vote and all the rest of it who you know the, the arrogance of it that allows people in, in that kind of level with those kind of salaries 
to behave so badly that we then need to put in place these detailed rules. There shouldn't be a need for these rules. These rules are ridiculous at a certain level. Imagine any company that had people at that level of salary and that started fobbing them in and fobbing them out and having to devise increasingly complex rules just to make sure that they do their jobs. It's absolutely extraordinary. It makes me really annoyed that these rules even have to be there. So that's number one. Secondly, if they if they are there, let's make them tough. Uh, having, having, arguing against myself to a degree, but let's yes, at least yeah. make sure they're enforced. But thirdly, it shouldn't really be about the rules at all. It should be about basic principles. It would appear from everything I've read uh, that Darry Murphy didn't didn't break any rules. But But I don't really couldn't care less to be honest about whether it broke the rules the question is was it the right thing to do so nobody's suggesting that that there was uh, that, that there was i don't know fraud or, or anything like that or, or anything out of ordinary out of out of order in relation to the rules but the point is as a moral principle should you be not just collecting two salaries but maximizing the absolute extent to which you can collect two by turning up for a few minutes or whatever seemed to be happening and we don't really know the, the details and maybe he was there for hours every day but it doesn't look like that it it certainly like doesn't. Was, not it doesn't from all the like reportage that. and he hasn't come back on exactly. it. Exactly. And, and therefore, I, I don't think it's really about the rules. I think it's about the rules shouldn't should probably shouldn't be there anyway for these people. They should get, just get the salary and that's it. There shouldn't be all these various expenses regimes right. on top of it. And, and, and even allowing for the fact that there's no rules, you have to go beyond the rules and have your own standards of morality on top of that. Um, Kevin Doyle, can I come back to you? Uh, on this, I mean, the first time I became aware of this was a very entertaining article written by Miriam Lord. Now, maybe there had been other uh, material published before that, but the word is that the dogs on the street, in this case, within the doll, were fully aware of what was going on. And it t- is there a, no way that, say, the Taoiseach himself, if it were drawn to his attention, could say, listen now, this, this this may be within the rules, but it's not really a runner. Well, the first thing is, it, it was an open secret in Leinster House. Any of us who, who operate and, and work in Leinster House on a daily basis knew that Dara Murphy wasn't there because we all eat in the same canteen. You know, we walk in the same corridors. You bump into all the TDs a hundred times a day. Um, And so when someone's not there for a prolonged period of time, you know about it. So that's the first thing. It was an open secret to the media, to the staff in Leinster House, to everybody there. It's been reported on in the media in the past. It just didn't get the big bang it got now because the fact that he's leaving, I suppose it's come to a head. Um, But you're right, uh, Marion, you're entirely right. The Taoiseach knew this was going on, um, which is a complicit endorsement in my eyes, but he knew one of his TDs was not there. His, they have a parliamentary party meeting, Fine Gael, every Wednesday evening in Leinster House in one of their own party rooms. <coughs> the Taoiseach knew Dara Murphy was never at those meetings. You know, all the TDs gather and it's their opportunity to ask ministers questions and to talk about what strategy is going on, yeah. all the rest of it, and what the latest row is. Um, and Dara Murphy was was rarely, if ever, at those meetings. So the Taoiseach knew about it and never pulled him up on it, which which is why I think is very interesting now that having initially stood by Dara Murphy and said, oh, he was still doing good political work and he was out in Europe and, you know, he was making contacts and it's all good for Ireland. Yeah. Um, and now the Taoiseach saying, well, maybe we need to reform the expenses thing and he'll cooperate with any investigations, which, of course, he can't be investigated now because he's gone out the door. Um, and, and saying the whole thing needs to be clamped down on there's just no two ways of looking about this. But the Taoiseach it knew what was going on. The Taoiseach was his boss and didn't pull him up. 
But could it be worse? I don't know this, but could it even be that the Taoiseach didn't want him to resign uh, and didn't want this to be tidied up? Because if it was, he would lose another, another Chile. Because if you, in a very narrow majority situation, or not even a majority minority government, that perhaps was a blind eye turned to this quite deliberately because they couldn't allow him to resign because they knew they wouldn't win the by election. I've no basis for saying that, by the way, but I'm just wondering. Because if you think about it from the Taoiseach's point of view, if he knew about it, and he must have known about it, so then the question was, did he not care or could he not do anything about it? Or indeed, did he not want to do anything about it because to do so? Because the, numbers, because the because numbers Because the numbers are so tight. Well, from May 18, I think um, Daryl Murphy indicated that he wasn't standing for re-election. So that's a year and a half ago at this stage. So at a very minimum, the Taoiseach knew, you know, 18 months ago that, that Mr Murphy was out the door. Um, but what he also knew was that for the few occasions that he was in the door and signing on and collecting his paychecks, he was he was doing this, and it is referred to as double jobbing in a lot of the papers because he was holding a post in Europe, and the Taoiseach at that time endorsed uh, Dara Murphy and gave him you know the very best of well wishes for his new endeavours in Europe when he announced that he wasn't going to stand for re-election, which is eighteen months ago. And what we now have is Leo Varadkar turning around saying, "Oh well, we have an expenses system designed by politicians for politicians, and that should change." And this is that question of who guards the guardians. Yeah. But we have to start overlooking our appointed officials. Right. Where does that leave us? Yeah, the, um, well, I mean, that's Owen's point. Yeah, I mean, completely. The, yeah. the, um, the, on the double jobbing phrase, he took exception to that because he said there are other people, there are barristers, and there, there are, are publicans, people. there are builders. There are plenty of people who actually double job. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I don't think, well, I certainly don't mind the people who double job as much if they actually do the two okay. jobs. Yes. Right, okay. Uh, just before I go to a break, an email says, is this the perfect time to merge? This is a proposal. Uh, a perfect time to merge with Northern Ireland Football Association and finally go the route of rugby, cricket and hockey. What a good idea. Well, we get to the Euros then is the, yeah. is the obvious okay. answer. There's an, an interesting one. Another one says, I seem to remember a certain Roy Key all those years ago highlighted the behaviour of certain members of the FAI and the organisation's appalling attitude to both players and fans and that comes from Clonakilty. No bias of a <laughs> geographical nature there. We'll take a break. Welcome back to the programme. Now, Met Aaron has upgraded its weather warning to status red for County Kerry as storm Atia approaches Ireland. It says wind speeds will be in excess of 80 kilometres an hour with gusts of more than 130 uh, kilometres uh, for a time this evening. Uh, the alert will be in effect from 4pm to 7pm. Met Aaron says extreme caution is advised across Kerry, especially near the coast and on high ground. It also says there's a possibility of coastal flooding due to a combination of high seas and storm surge. So uh, and we'll be talking about that a little more after 12 and get some more details on it. Now, uh, the Sunday Times, page one, Boris Post for comfortable wins. Sunday Times, page 12. 
You are the 120th interview I've done and I'm proud to be doing it. This is Tim uh, Shipman Corbyn, poised to resign if Labour loses election. And on and on and on and on and on. And I'm looking over my shoulder here and he's on with, uh, I think it's Sky News, um, doing an interview now. Um, you are the go-to uh, person on on this. We got stung by opinion polls before, mm-hmm. both in North America and indeed uh, in Britain. But everybody's writing very confidently that he's going to stroll home. They are, and um, it's interesting in the... Uh, so it depends which paper you're looking at as to how comfortably they think Boris Johnson will win, uh, notably The Observer, which obviously left-leaning paper. Um, they too think that there's a very strong likelihood of a uh, Johnson majority, and hence you have people from Labour, Liberal Democrats, the SNP coming out and urging people to vote tactically. So even in the Observer... What do, what do they mean by that? So there is, so in the Observer they have like a map of 50 constituencies across the UK, many of them in Scotland, um, targeting Tory seats, yeah. um, which, are, which are pretty unsafe. So the way it comes down to that majority, with that majoritarian voting system, um, that specific um, seats could go um, one way or another and then make a very big difference in terms of which party gets the majority for government. So it's really down, yes, to like three dozen seats uh, to determine the whole outcome of this election. And hence saying if you want a second referendum, for example, on Brexit, then it's either voting for Labour or voting for Liberal Democrat, depending on who... Liberal Democrat seems to be sliding down the water slide, if you'll pardon my mentioning water slides. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) that might come later. Excuse me, sorry. Um, Yes, so... Uh, Poor Joe Swinson, who's come in as leader of that party, um, and it seems some public opinion polls suggest that the more people hear of her, the less they like her and less likely to support the Liberal Democrats, which is a big point for them. I think they made a a strategic error in saying that they would not have a second referendum or not really go for that. They go straight for a revoke, which even for the most ardent Remainers sits somewhat uncomfortably. Um, given, of course, the majority that there was in the Brexit referendum right. all those years ago. So that would be regarded as lack of respect, I presume? Yes, it just, yes, and, and uh, there have been strong criticisms from those, such as the Green Party, who would be expected to give um, or encourage voting support for the Liberal Democrats in certain target seats. It, it sits uneasily with them that you'd go straight for a vote. But that is in the, that is in the can of the British government if it wished right. to do that. Talk to me about Mr Corbyn. Um, like, there was an open goal there. It's it's kind of unbelievable that that Labour are going down, though maybe they're not. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. the, the polls will have got it wrong again. Yeah. But, but, you know, on things like... He, he seems like a decent man with a sense of equality and all of that. But I was absolutely shocked that he let that anti-Semitism thing thing go. Yeah, so, I mean, you're right to point to the polls. So the the result of the 2017 election was surprising because what we saw then was um, sort of the Corbynistas, the Momentum group, which is mainly younger people voting for Corbyn and liking him. We have seen um, a huge increase in those who are registered to vote this time round. Um, Two-thirds of those or more are under the age of 35. 
Um, so maybe there will be a surprise again that those people will um, come out and vote for Corbyn. We don't know. His popularity is definitely declining even amongst Labour supporters. And uh, that his well, you know, he refusal never to really apologise for have the um, support of his parliamentary party. Sure, he didn't. No, and part of that is the fact that, of, um, of course, he is you know, a convinced believer, you know, uh, for, you know, long-standing reasons. You, yeah. know, you know, Euroscepticism sort of runs in his veins and hence still um, people being asked to vote in certain seats for Labour if they're Remainers. Again, they're looking then to Corbyn who, say, who says, yes, we'll have a second referendum, but I'm not necessarily going to lead Labour in campaigning for Remain in that. It's very confusing it's for him. It's extremely confusing, it? yes. Yeah. You know, if you take Boris, get Brexit done... It, while it is in itself meaningless and a lie because it mm. won't be done Absolutely. by the 31st of the month but it, but people get the message make america great again yeah it's the same thing it's simple yeah. it's concise and yes it's kind of meaningless but you, you know what he means at the same time yes and and i think if boris as it looks wins we, it, it'll just there's a political thesis in it because it won't be so much boris winning this election as him having no opposition that could possibly challenge him. You have to manage any other Miliband could have been Prime Minister in this scenario. Pretty much anybody at the head of the Labour Party except Jeremy Corbyn could have been there. And then you have Joe Swinson, as you said, who I think has just thrown away one of the best opportunities to make the Liberal Democrats a real third party what, in British what, what politics. What did she do wrong? She just doesn't impress somehow or another. I, I think she started... The Liberal Democrats were in a really good place because yes. people... Labour were so uncertain on Brexit and the Conservatives were so hardline on Brexit that the Liberal Democrats, by offering the idea of a second referendum, they seemed reasonable. It was like, we'll listen to people, we'll try and find a way to keep everybody happy, even though we know that's not going to be possible. And then somewhere, it's like she got a rush of blood to the head or, or it, it, something happened and they decided to go for this, no, we'll just revoke it and, and to hell with Brexit, which was an awful idea because they obviously decided Labour hadn't gone hard enough and we'll try and get that hardcore. And I think it slightly reminds me of, of but it's actually worse. Do you remember all the Gilmore for Taoiseach posters? yeah. Well, she has Swinson for Prime Minister and yeah, she just got ahead of herself unwise, very and, and jumped into that space that, that most people went, no, you're not going to be Prime Minister, but you could hold the balance of power. So let's go be real. And, and I think she just yeah. lost it. You wanted to come in on. Well, I, I was just thinking about how unlucky Ireland has been through this. If you bring it back home to Ireland, we're, we're unlucky in uh, in terms of producing what will actually still be, I think, a pretty hard Brexit, even if the deal goes through on the first first January. I might just come back to that in a second. But meanwhile, we're unlucky in that we got in that we that, that the Remain side lost a narrow uh, election in the first place. Then unlucky that that this, uh, the direction of policy immediately became not just that they would leave the EU, but that they'd leave the single market, they'd leave the customs union. So that everything went the wrong direction then. Then unlucky that you had somebody like Theresa May who couldn't manage anything as far as we can tell trying to manage the process. Unlucky that Jeremy Corbyn, the most incompetent leader of the opposition there's ever been, I would have thought, in, in, in the UK, uh, was the one that was trying to stop the equally incompetent Prime Minister trying to push through a deal that would have been a much softer deal than what we're going to end up with. Uh, and then if we even take the fact that this deal has been done for the 31st January and let's suppose that everybody's right and that Boris Johnson does win and that goes through, that's only the start. Yeah. Uh, and 
and they have to decide within five months as to whether they extend the negotiations because as, as of now, while the legal deal will be done by the end of January, there'll still be uh, a falling off a cliff in terms of tr- free trade with the, with, the, right. with the EU and us at the, end of, at the end of next year, which is only 13 months away. Okay, and we're let back me to square com- one all over again and more negotiations. Yeah, the, uh, uh, back to you, Katie. In the north, what's, mm-hmm. what's the scale there? So there's different analyses um, in the Sunday Times. Uh, they're predicting that the DUP will stay on 10 seats um, in that they are hoping to take North Down, which is Lady Sylvia Herman's seat. She was independent, um, a very strong voice for Northern Ireland Yes. Um, in Westminster. So they're hoping, well, the DUP hope to take that seat, but they're expecting to lose South Belfast. Um, they're expecting to lose. Yes. Yeah. Um, and they so they'll be Egan Stephen. Yeah, and it's, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see how those middle ground soft unionists possibly even remain supporting unionists will vote. Will they vote for the Ulster Unionist Party, uh, which is <coughs> has sort of come right back round 360 degrees to supporting Remain in a sort of tentative way, um, um, picking up on the fact that unionists are so uncomfortable with this withdrawal agreement, or will they vote for the Alliance Party, um, which is sort of resolutely standing in in um, uh, you know, not stepping down to sort of have remain um, allegiances being formed. Um, will the, those unionists vote for the Alliance Party? And the reason why this is significant is because of what comes next. So we've got the talks for re-establishing the Northern Ireland Assembly due to start on the 16th of December. Um, if the DUP have a bit of a hammering in the general election or a bit of um, a sort of a, a poor result, um, the expectation is that maybe they'll be more likely to sign up in these talks to sort of uh, swallow the Irish language bill pill um, and then get things up and running again, which couldn't come soon enough because Mm. Northern Ireland is in crisis in several ways, particularly with regards to the health service provision. And we've seen this most recently this past week with um, strikes um, amongst nurses. So uh, we are in crisis there. Um, and uh, th- this this election, therefore, is highly significant, not just in terms of what it means for the uh, for for Westminster and Northern Ireland's representation there, uh, but also for uh, local politics. For well. for Stormont, and yeah. you figure that the DUP will retain the same number. Uh, what wh- what about the Sinn Fein? Mm-hmm. What about the SDLP? Mm-hmm. What about the UUP? Yes, so the UUP's best chance is possibly in Fermanagh, South Tyrone, where they've done an, um, a deal with the DUP um, to try and uh, um, shift uh, Michelle Gildenew's seat uh, from Sinn Féin. That's p- unlikely to... You know, at the, the moment, the, the papers seem to be saying she's um, likely to retain her seat. However, Sinn Féin are under pressure in foil, uh, where Colm Eastwood is standing for the SDLP, um, and... The, the expectation is I that they will the old take John that. Hume seat. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I, I mean, I wonder whether the analysis at the moment is underestimating the potential support for the Alliance Party. Um, and uh, we note here there's an interesting piece from Amanda Ferguson um, in the uh, Sunday Times about um, what might happen in North Belfast as well. Um, so as you'd expect to see, we have the sort of sectarian headcount thing going on, the toxic politics in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, uh, Nigel Dodds is under great pressure in North Belfast. John Finucane, very interesting Sinn Féin candidate standing there. The SDLP have stood down to give him the best chance on the premise that that is a Remain vote. If you want to support right. Remain, you vote for uh, Sinn Féin. In that well, it would be a relief if it did break down on Leave and Remain rather than on just sectarian. Uh, 
as you go around your life, so to speak, does anybody across the water give two continentals about what happens in Northern Ireland? <laughs> so that's an interesting question because actually if you think about what Jeremy Corbyn did this week with the um, uh, Treasury's reports and pointing out yeah. that of course if we have this withdrawal agreement going through it will mean checks and controls on the Irish Sea we don't know the extent to which those will occur but anyway that will happen and Boris Johnson, Priti Patel, um, Home Secretary all doubling down and sort of saying um, you know, denying the fact that there will be checks and controls and the point is that There actually, will be, won't there? Well, well, actually, yeah, there will be. Um, they are saying, no, there won't be. And so this really comes down to that fundamental question of, well, there's two things going on there. One is that, you know, facts are kind of um, played with fast and loose. And the second point, um, as, as you're making, is that they really don't care. So um, Andrea led some... Um, which Tory MP was saying, really, you know, Northern Ireland's nowhere near my constituency. And that's <laughs> what it comes down to. And I really do think with this withdrawal agreement, they think that they are hiving off Northern Ireland. They've got rid of the tail wagging the dog over yeah, Brexit. Yeah, you sometimes feel that they would like to. And certainly there are previous secretaries of state who, when they were leaving and moving on, sort of shook the dust off their uh, mm -hmm. shoes and said not no more listen I'm going to have to leave it there because I'm going to have to take a break uh, before the news at midday we'll take that break now Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio And thank you very very much indeed now uh, new provisions reducing the amount of time married couples have to live apart before they're able to get a divorce will come into effect this week. And the barrister, uh, Irene Sands, can talk us through some of the changes. By the way, I should have said with my manners uh, that we've been joined by Tony O'Brien in studio, former DG of the HSE, and we'll be talking to him uh, later on about cervical check. The end of the report from her. Now, t a, a quick explainer. So on we, this one. Uh, we had a referendum back in May of this year in terms of whether we were happy to change the time limit. If I can put it very simply, change the time limit that uh, has to pass before you're eligible to apply for divorce. So when the divorce referendum was passed way back in 95, um, you had to originally be separated, living separate and apart for four out of the last five years. Now, the world has moved on um, and we're, we move at a much different pace now. And it's, it's probably reflected in the figures that divorce referendum actually only passed by a margin of a percent at the time. Yeah. This referendum passed by 82%. So it was a huge amount of people were in favour of this. The amendment basically means that instead of having to wait for four years and be separate from your, from your ex-partner for four years, you now only have to be uh, living separate and apart for two out of the last three. Supposing you're in negative equity so, and you need a roof over your head. Which is a very surprisingly uh, common occurrence uh, in, in terms of cases that come before the court. So you can have a couple that are separated um, but maybe because they have children or like that they're in negative equity they're not in a financial position to literally have one person move out of the home. They remain residing under the one roof and that is actually much more common than people would probably think 
when couples are separating. Um, but it has also changed the definition of living separate and apart. So what it has now is that we have to wait two years out of the previous three and it has defined living apart and it has clarified what that means. So you can still live separate and apart but live under the same roof. Right. Um, and that really is going to impact a huge amount of couples because really with, with the the fall after the Celtic Tiger, people were not financially able to separate physically from one another. Um, but they were living very separate and apart lives. And the other thing is that they're saying um, the Act, which has come into force at the start of December, is that um, living apart, that the relationship doesn't necessarily cease to be an intimate relationship merely because it's no longer a sexual relationship. So there are plenty of couples who are very happily married and in a very intimate relationship but may not necessarily be a sexual relationship. Um, so it covers that and caveat would all that as well. have to be discussed in the court? No, not necessarily. Um, what really you have to fulfil the criteria um, and the criteria has been made much easier that's that's the long and short of it um, it links in with the Cohabitees uh, Act that came in in 2010 in terms of same-sex marriage and cohabiting couples so it has brought the position much more in line with the modern position overall Right What's our divorce rate like? Very low 1 in 10 um, so we have one of the lowest rates in the world, actually. But what I, and I was thinking about this, what you have, there's also a mechanism for judicial separation and people opt for that. That time limit has also been reduced down now to one year. Um, but an awful lot of people, I suppose traditionally, and dare I say it traditionally, older people um, who are living separate and apart from one another have been living apart for maybe 20 years, but they don't want to divorce from one another. Um, those are people who have opted to be judicially separated, but right. it doesn't entitle them to remarry. So they actually, they've moved on, they have different partners, they're in different houses, but they, they won't, you know, they, they sort of have the traditional view that when they married somebody, they married them. And whilst they're living separate and apart, they don't want a formal divorce. And the judicial separation allows for that in terms of division of assets. And that also is now on a much quicker timescale. Right. And does that give more or less the same rights as a full divorce would give? It, it does essentially save for the, well, the, right the ability to remarry. to remarry, broadly speaking. But a judicial separation really deals with kind of the, the ins and outs, the nitty gritty, the assets, the financials, maybe maintenance, custody, access, those type of things. It, it predominantly deals with the actual nitty gritty of a reality of a separation yeah, as yeah. opposed to the legalities. Yeah, no, not, not a pleasant uh, business to be going through. Uh, it was a, such a divisive um, thing. Do you remember um, Hello Divorce, Bye Bye Daddy? That, that I don't think, I, do you tell me, happened. Well, not from my own experience in terms of what's coming before the courts and not only do so I, I wouldn't like people to think that they have to be bound by these timelines there's what we would call interim orders can be made so if a couple decide to separate tomorrow but they, they're not eligible for a divorce for three years there can be orders put in place in terms of maintenance for children access for children and, and those are utilised all the time so you will hear people in and out of the, and it's, it's actually a very positive thing that family law courts are now being covered in the papers and yeah. people are allowed in obviously you can't identify anyone it, yes. but it's made it much more relatable to people who understand there's access in and out all the time guardianship custody welfare of children where they go to school all of those things now are, are, are matters 
that both parents have a say in. So right. it it didn't. It de- well, not in my experience. I don't think it led to, to bye bye daddy. Right. Maybe to some people's well, disappointment. I think, <laughs> uh, I think that the current generation of daddies are much more hands-on. proactive. Yeah. Yeah, they're much more proactive at, at exercising their rights. To be fair. Yeah. Um, the but interesting thing is it, that at the time, a, a man that might have been expected to go against it, John Bruton was very much in favour of it. I, 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 for for me as a practitioner and the general sense for practitioners across the board is that this is a positive move. We're li- we're we're just living in very very different times, um, where everything moves at a much quicker pace. And when you have people who have to hang on for four years before they can draw a line under that particular chapter in their life, it's just it's not a reality anymore. You know, yeah. by the t- often you'll see couples coming in on very good terms with one another. They may both have new partners. Some people have new babies, and they're all coming to court together on on the day of the divorce. And it's actually a very positive thing because t- so much time has elapsed. But this lets them literally get on with their lives. Right. legally on a much quicker And tell quicker me basis. on that four years changing to two years what what kind of delay is there in other countries? How long do you have to wait to apply? Well you, you would I hear I saw of the, one of them was three months You have the quickie divorces in the States where the, you know they can be a matter of days they never wanted that position here in Ireland because there has to be various steps that have to go through in terms of is there a prospect of reconciliation? Is there something that can be mediated? There are other remedies that have to be sort of exhausted before we allow the, the divorce trigger to be pulled essentially. Um, so there, there are there are various time limits around the world. But I, th- I think what we've taken is a very reasonable approach. I think two years is is enough time to let the hurt maybe go out of it. To allow and the heat of battle. And the heat, exactly. And to allow a lot of those issues be mediated. And in two years, a lot of people really have sort of bedded down into their new routines with access or with children. You know, two years is long enough for that to happen or should be long enough anyway. Well, right. Well, well, that's what the, the view that the um, that the, the electorate took. Uh, we're going to do something on the weather very shortly. Do you want me to take a break? before it yeah listen thanks for that I'll come back to you on other matters as they say later but now we'll take a break podcast the Marion Finucane show at rte.ie slash radio Welcome back to the programme now. Given the day that's in it, we have been joined in studio by Jerry Murphy from uh, the Met Office. Give us a picture, Jerry, please. Um, well, there's a storm, an Atlantic storm, our first named storm of the season, uh, Storm Atia, which is rapidly making its way towards us. Now, we have issued warnings for all parts of the country, but most especially in the last hour or so, we've updated our warning for County Kerry to a red level warning. So between 4pm and 7pm for County Kerry, and indeed then... Always a threat then in the in the areas bordering that, possibly South Clare, West Cork as well. You need to take these warnings in the overall. Yeah. But for County Kerry, between 4pm and 7pm, the winds will increase into the red level, which means we can expect northwest winds to gust to over 130 kilometres per what hour. What would that have been called in old God's money? Oh, in storm force. Or in, oh no, that's it, it's storm force and potentially violent storm force just on the coast. Right. So it's a very, very, very stormy. And um, now for the rest of the period for County Kerry, they're still orange. It's just that peak time it goes into the red. But then for they're still orange for the rest of the time, which is again gusting up to one hundred and thirty kilometres per hour. Right. And that's valid really for all of the west. So counties Cork, Clare, Limerick, Galway, Mayo. Sligo, Leitrim and Donegal. So uh, this late this, after- this afternoon 
this evening and early tonight, those counties will all get very strong winds. Then for the rest of the country, yeah. um, it's a yellow level warning. And the rest of the country will get their strongest winds this evening and overnight. Now, while there is a yellow level warning, which people uh, sometimes don't pass much remarks of it yes. these days, yeah. this is very much on the upper level of the yellow because it is a storm that's coming across. So those yellow level winds should be, warnings should be heeded as well for tonight. So in summary, really, I suppose, carry the peak of the winds yeah. between four and seven all up along the western seaboard, seaboard um, for the sea, this afternoon, this evening and good part of tonight right. and the rest of the country really for the rest of the night. And when may we all expect calm? Oh, really from tomorrow morning onwards. It, it will disappear from the west of the country after midnight. It'll yeah. be, winds will be easing. They'll stay strong in the east until morning. But even by rush hour, they should be dying down a bit. But at rush hour tomorrow morning, given that the winds will be strong and that they're coming from the northwest, which is a direction that generates some very high gusts, this does give the potential for some damage. So people need to be careful on the roads tomorrow morning. Right. OK, well, listen, thank you. Will Will this all be accompanied by, by rain? There was torrential rain in Dublin last night. Yes, there's very heavy showers pushing right across the country with those with those strong winds. Um, so showers of rain, hail and a few of them of thunder as well. So a really unsettled, stormy day, I'm afraid. Right, OK. Uh, black, black clouds and high wind and thunder in Ennis. We had a bad night also, says Sonia. Well, it's not going to go away yet, but it will. OK, Jerry Murphy, thank you so much uh, for coming in. And we're going to move on now to another story that was really exercising so many people. Uh, th- well, not just this week, but for the last 18 months. And this week, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists published their review of cervical check. While it found missed opportunities to prevent or diagnose cancer earlier in some women, overall it found the Irish Cervical Screening Programme is performing effectively. Uh, And uh, uh, this is also in the context of Lorraine Walsh uh, resigning. But anyway, uh, the Tony, uh, this has been so... Turbulent, shall we say. The former Director General, Tony O'Brien, joins me now. He resigned in May of last year as a result of this controversy. Tony, let's start at the beginning and the review conducted by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, which are ORCOG. How did you read what they found? First of all, it's a very comprehensive report, and I think we should preface any remarks by recognising that they're reviewing uh, the cases of people who had been diagnosed with cancer over the 10-year period, so it's necessarily a difficult time for them and their families. 1,034 consents were given for this review, and in some cases that meant consents given by next of kin, so clearly it's a sensitive time. Yeah. What they found uh, is that, as you've said, cervical screening saves lives, including many of those women who consented to take part in the review. They've also concluded, which I think we knew, uh, that cervical screening cannot prevent all cases and will fail to prevent between 30 and 35% of cancers, even in well Can I go back on that bit? Because when the whole story broke, there was a, seemed to be a complete confusion between... Um, what the function of screening was and diagnostics and that screening is not 
a diagnostic. Yeah, and it's a very important distinction. What, what screening does is seek to identify those members of the public who take part in the screening programme who should go on to a diagnostic process. And the particular technology used, which is known as cervical cytology, yeah. we know will only pick up about 16 out of every 20 cancers that might possibly be detected and present in the population who are screened. So it's not a perfect science. And what it then does is triggers a process whereby where there is an abnormality detected in a slide looked at in a laboratory, yeah. a woman is referred to a further test, which is diagnostic, which is carried out in what's known as a colposcopy clinic, Yes, where a health professional, typically an obstetrician or a highly trained advanced nurse practitioner, will examine the cervix to look for changes and yeah. then proceed One to treatment. One of whom was writing about this recently. Yes. And she said, we have found it difficult to voice our opinions. Those who have tried are ignored or vilified. Uh, and she goes through how many there are locally. But apparently her staff are, are at breaking point and they're putting up with an awful lot of abuse. Well, unfortunately, we're still living with the overhang of some of the misunderstandings uh, that occurred 18 months ago. Now, this is, without doubt, a serious issue, and I'm not going to try and downplay or minimise it, particularly for those involved. But at the outset, uh, reading some of the media coverage and listening to some of the politicians who ought to have known better, you could get the view that what happened here was that the programme knew of cancer diagnosis and had withheld it. We now know definitively that was never the case. There was also a view uh, that, in some way, the use of particular laboratories, whether they be outsourced or not, was the cause of this problem, and that obviously came from a particular political perspective. And through both the Gabriel Scali review and this review, we know that this service is performing at about the level that you'd expect, and that tends to undermine the argument that yeah. there's a particular problem. Comparable with Britain. The yeah. only thing is, I'll never get the image out of my head of Lorraine Walsh sitting there with two separate pieces of paper, yeah. both of which she got from the same organisation, both of which gave her different results. Well, I think it's important to stress with respect to ARCOG, the organisation that carried out this expert review on behalf of the Irish government, that what they were being asked to do was a quite a difficult and complex process. And in a small number of cases, and I understand hers may be one of them, though I don't know this in detail, where there was a difficulty getting all of the original slides, in other words, if they couldn't find a discordant result, they called it concordant, which means it was the same. Perhaps in an ideal world, they'd have been a middle category, inconclusive, or so on. So there are a small number of women, as I understand it's it. It's very interesting that she and Vicky Phelan were, who, were within it. Who, where there was a particular difficulty uh, with obtaining all of the information and so on. Now, that's very significant for those individual women, and it's important that a way is found to provide them with the reassurance that they need. But that doesn't detract from the overall findings of the report. And this is why it's particularly important. I'd like to come back to the staff in a moment if I can. Yeah. But this is a programme that has detected over 70,000 abnormalities in cervical cancer, in, in the cervical slides, has allowed those women to go on for early treatment and has undoubtedly saved lives and has the potential to continue to do so. In a few months, the programme will adopt a new method uh, HPV testing primary, which means that... Explain that, the difference. Well, one, one looks for the presence of a virus, which is a precursor, a necessary precondition to cervical cancer. It will result in more women being checked at colposcopy for a given period. Right. But the primary difference is that whereas the existing method will probably detect 16 out of 20 
this new method will increase that to 18 out of 20, so it's yeah. more effective. It, and, and everybody says it is more effective. Everybody yeah. in the professional world says it is I think more the effective. Sci- I think the science behind it is unquestioned at this stage. It will be more effective. OK, but one of the points Dr Noreen Russell made in her article, and I have heard other uh, obstetricians say so as well, that you can end up kind of being too, treating in advance too much and that it has an effect on miscarriage, on all sorts of, of difficulties. You know, that, I mean, the wisdom of, of, I don't know what, the wisdom of Job on how to handle these matters. Yeah, there's a difficulty with all screening programmes, whatever they're for. There are certain rules from a public health perspective that have to be followed, but what you need to do is construct the programme in a way that neither undertreats nor overtreats. You can do harm if you calibrate your screening programme incorrectly. That's, that's one of the reasons why these things are not perfect. Right. The minister earlier in this week spoke of the difficult and painful reality that no screening programme can be perfect, and I have to agree with him on that point. Yeah, and I think we m- might reiterate, though, as has been said very, very often, that any of the women that are campaigning in this, and they have every right to, um, always consistently set, encourage people to go and be screened. But why has it been so utterly contentious? Is it incompetence? Is it... I'll I'll be a little bit controversial, if I may. As long as you don't libel anyone, you can say what you want. I've I've never been into that. I've been libelled a few times Mm -hmm. myself. I don't think I've ever libelled anybody else. At the time, and to some extent since, both in political and media circles, there has been either a deliberate or an unfortunate unwillingness to focus on the key issues. Back at, back at the time, various politicians, and it's well known who they are, we don't need to rehearse it, completely over-egged this issue. It was a very serious issue. But it, it is a very serious issue. But it wasn't issue. the issue that they represented, and they represented things in a way which would and did undermine public confidence in the effectiveness of yeah. the programme. And to their credit, those at the very centre of this have always encouraged women to continue they have. using the programme. The second thing yeah. is that in the media, it's not always been well portrayed. Even this week, if I looked at RTE's own headlines, they led with the missed opportunities without in any significant way referencing the key message from ARCOG, which was that this programme saves lives and is performing well by international standards. Yes, but so the missed opportunities matter. Of course, but they're an inherent part of the screening programme, and that's right. the central point that these experts from another jurisdiction who had no vested interest in this were trying to make. OK. And it's can, key. But it, you, you can I just about the say staff. that this wouldn't, this wouldn't have emerged as the issue it did if Vicky Phelan hadn't gone and refused to be gagged Mm. By you guys. Actually, the state wasn't trying to gag. I think it's very clear. Was it not the HSE? No, one of the other parties, I believe. But it's also the case, just to balance that, that Cervical Check was attempting to be the first screening programme in the world to carry out one of these audits and communicate the results to the women involved. That's the bit. It, It came from a very good place, but the process was not delivered well. And consequently, it's important to stress that the people who work in cervical check then and now do so with the very best of intentions. They always did. And some of the criticism that has been landed upon them is very damaging to them. But more importantly, right now, I'm not sure, and the letter during the week made this clear, I'm not sure that if you were an obstetrician in training, 
that you'd put working in a screening program at the top of your list of priorities given all the other opportunities there are. So hopefully this ARCOG review, despite the difficulties and the challenges they had, and it was a yeah. complex process which should be acknowledged, will now put the matter to rest. We have a very effective cervical screening program. Sheila, it has uh, saved what's lives. Your, it will continue to save lives. What's your read of this? So, in no way am I a medical expert, so I can't yes, speak. But as you're a female, yeah, but, uh, yeah, and also I'm an analyst, so I, you know, work with data quite a bit, and I agree uh, to <coughs> a large extent. It shouldn't detract um, the fact that Lorraine Walsh's and Vicky Phelan's cases seem by by Lorraine's. Uh, you know, account on prime yes. time, um, that it, her and Vicky Phelan's cases, there was discrepancies in. Um, and these it, these reviews are complex but you and should technically be done blind, but because of this situation, they can't be, um, that Vicky Phelan and Lorraine Walsh's cases were handled with a little bit of extra care. Um, and I'm not saying to, to diminish the other women, uh, of but, course, but I'm yeah. just saying they, they were, because it's not blind, any person you would have thought would have looked more into those kind of high profile cases. Yes. Exactly. Um, but to be fair, just reading the media and hearing the counts, it's, it would be unfair of me to say who was at fault or what. I, I, I've tried to read them to say, is there something indicating who was at fault, whether it was when they got the slides being given or when they got the cases. But I think that should have been much more highlighted because while it shouldn't detract, it does detract because it calls into question, it, not its independence, I, I agree it's an independent report, yeah. but its validity, its integrity. And unfortunately, sometimes we've, you know, as an analyst, we've written what we believe are good reports, but actually one element of them ends up calling the whole thing into question. And I, I do think that in many ways the political rhetoric after it didn't acknowledge that, that actually if one case or two cases that th these are discrepancies were there, there was a problem. And it was only when they were raised again by Lorraine that actually there was acknowledgement that they happened. Yeah. But, but I preface all that with I'm only going on what I'm reading in the of media course. as a citizen yeah. rather than... Aaron? Um, I suppose there was a... Uh, th there are a number of articles dealing with it. There was one in particular that had a, a full page article on it. I don't have it in front of me. Um, where... I think some of the women really felt quite let down by the outcome and by, um, I suppose, the conclusions of the report. And that's absolutely understandable insofar as it, it seems to have taken sort of a contradictory position to what has been put out there and portrayed previously. Um, I suppose I, I take a slightly different slant on it in that if if the end result of um, all of these women, Lorraine Walsh and, and Vicky Phelan and, and others who have uh, been so outspoken about their experiences, if it highlights the the broader issue of the importance of women going to get checked and indeed men going to get checked for their own issues. Yeah. But if it highlights the importance of people engaging with the process and and going to going to a, as good an end as they can, like we can only trust our system in as much as we have one that's here. Right. So to that end, you, we have a system that we have to engage with. And I think if it highlights the broader issue in terms of cervical cancer and the outcomes, the you know, it, the good outcomes if it's caught early and the, the devastating outcomes if it's not, I think it's it highlights a much broader, very important issue, not only for women, but I think also for men and 
in a broader sense. Right. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's really what those those two women in particular and so many other voices right. are trying to, to do. You know, yeah. it's not just highlight the failure of the system, but also to highlight the underlying actual issue that people need they do need to go and look at these things and they do need to address them and they do need to keep their their checks in in place with their health in general. Martin just a quick thing you were saying there about um, people who felt it was difficult to voice opinions you know to raise this woman named I think she's in Limerick. Exactly Um, I think that's what we were speaking about all today it just seems to be that these opportunities for people to speak out whether it was FAI whether you know people were saying it was known that it was going on it you know, it, it now it's it, those opportunities in all organisations, especially state organisations. I'll give you the analogy of uh, aircraft carriers. If, if you're actually rewarded for speaking out if something is wrong in an aircraft carrier, even if it stops planes landing, um, because actually the chances of a big incident happening by a loose spanner or, you know, whatever. Loose, whatever. Yeah. So you're rewarded for putting your head above the parapet. And I think there needs to be a cultural change where actually people speaking out aren't belittled or demoned of, oh, it's them again. It's actually that there's a recognition that they may be the first ones to indicate a problem. And that's a positive rather than a negative. Right, that was Noreen uh, Russell. I yeah, was it's, it's important yeah. to emphasise that what she was speaking about, and I agree with what you said, what she was speaking about is in this case, it's clinicians working in, in the cervical check programme feeling unable to speak up for the programme because of the really negative and hostile yeah. environment. And that is re- a really dangerous place to get to. Uh, they are doing tremendous work. They've had an incredible workload in the last 18 months due to, in fact, the surge of people looking for cervical screening and colposcopy. And we need them. There are 15 colposcopy clinics. And if we're to successfully move to this new better test, they're going to have more work to do. We need them. We can't afford to lose any of them. That goes for all the staff in cervical check who, okay. who, who got a pretty raw deal in this whole process, I have to say. She says 15 clinics, less than 50 trained colposcopists. Uh, before we finish up on this, Kevin, has the politics gone out of this now? A little bit. Um, I, I think this report probably closes another chapter on it but I don't think it's one of these stories we can ever move on I don't think um, you know at some point the FAI will rebrand and move on I think this is a very different situation because you're playing with life and death and I understand where, where Tony's coming from in terms of the way both politics and media um, reacted at the time when this first came out but some of it was like you know well, there was a there was a blame game, an immediate yeah. blame game, and yeah. and that got lost in emotion. And I think this particular topic has a lot of emotion because yeah, because I, it's life and death. It's life and, and death, and, yeah. and I think most every every family in this country has a cancer story. And if they saw Vicky feeling coming down the steps of the high court that day, going, "I have a terminal diagnosis, and I didn't have to, or it mightn't have been like this." Every family reacted. And I think politicians got lost in that. Media got lost in that. And real people got lost in that. And maybe now we're just kind of clearing the smoke a little bit to see. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, mind you, what she said was 100% true. Yeah. And, 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 and like uh, Vicky Phelan is a hero, I think. Yeah. In, in, and there's no two ways about it. And, you know, uh, maybe in some ways the media can shut up and the politicians can shut up and we'll let her tell us how to do this going forward. Yeah, there's an article in the... Irish Times or the Sunday Times Sunday Times Brenda Power Brenda Power yeah that was Brenda Power but there's also the lesson that there is value in having external reviews 
and then deciding who to shoot. Maybe they're shooting first and asking questions Careful later. now. <laughs> Mind you, I don't ever carry arms. <laughs> oh, we know that. We know that. OK, listen, Tony, thank you very, very much indeed for that. And we are going on to a much, I suppose, lighter subject now, and only very briefly. There were a couple of articles about Owen Keegan's hobbies, which include rafting which he says has nothing, nada, to do with the new proposal. Whitewater rafting for for Dublin. Owen? My office overlooks, uh, pretty much overlooks, this famous square, pool, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And in the past, it's been used for sort of Christmas markets. They They put in the middle of this pool, they drain the water. Pool, is that the right word? Whatever you call it. Basin. Basin, I suppose. Christy they drain Burke, the water. The former Lord Mayor calls it an open grave. Yeah, but it's far off. And when they do drain the water, as you believe me, what's left is A, ugly, and B, smelly. Uh, the stink mm. of it when they drain the water. It's also used for Oktoberfests in October and for a Christmas fair in winter. That was about all it did. And then we have the story, and a lot of people uh, asking questions, I suppose, just for those people who haven't seen the, uh, the story yet about why the government, uh, sorry, why Dublin City Council is looking to spend, is it 22 or 25 million on developing? Going this, this basin up. and the and, and of course we know it'll be a lot more than that in the yeah. end as usual. Uh, on on turning it into white rafter, white water rafting or kayaking or something like that. Yeah. Uh, of course, it seems. I mean, as an observer just looking in, it seems very small to have it. But anyway, the experts seem to think it will be good. I, I I'm very conflicted on it. On the one hand, I completely get that you know we're, we're trying to spend money on homelessness now on white water rafting courses. On the other hand, I'm not sure homelessness is solved by 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 money per se. I think there's a lot of policy issues, and also I suppose at the same time you can't lose sight of trying to develop a city and trying to give it a heart and have activity in it um, and, and, and keep it moving particularly yeah, but in the city it's, centre. it's very expensive to do it. It is very expensive and then the further complication this morning is that uh, which paper is it? Sorry someone, someone but has, has revealed uh, that uh, the Dublin City Manager is, has a personal interest as you said himself in, in this sport which I, I gather he's now rebutted in saying well it's vaguely the same sport but it's not really the same sport and he's never done this particular one. I, I don't know what to make of it if I'm perfectly honest. I I, I think that generally developing a city has benefits in the long term and as long as it pays for itself and doesn't become a white elephant Hello. and costs another million or two a year in, in lost costs yeah maybe you throw your eyes up to heaven I don't know but maybe if it pays for itself and washes its face and right. I get something to look at out my window sure you know <laughs> there might be something to be said <laughs> the only it. thing is we were on the boil water notices you know yeah. I wonder if you can do this with what us. would their water rates be if they have to pay it back to the city council there might be a long term benefit to it well we might get we might get it cleaner I saw you shaking your head uh, Irene well the, immediately the the, the first thing that came to mind was we'll build this facility I think someone this morning was was quoting how much it's going to cost to go I think is it 50 euro a go or 150 euro for a raft and kind of going this isn't actually going to be a sport for people to partake in it's going to be an occasional once a year treat for most families Um, but I I sort of was kind of giggling to myself because I was like we'll have built this at undoubtedly spiralled costs as we always do and it'll be open probably for a year or two and then there will be no one to insure it because that's the way these things go. The insurance companies will pull out because it'll be too pricey to be able to cover the the claims from it and we'll end up with this monstrosity in the middle of the city with 
no great purpose. What a cheerful, what a cheerful <laughs> analysis. Well, the, well if, if you take, there's a number of articles actually dealing with um, the rising insurance costs again today. In one in the childcare sector, there's another one talking about the rising insurance leaves Santa boat high and dry. So like if where else Andy can't even get insurance, I don't know where that leaves the, the white water well, rafters. Well, probably because he's not up in the air, he's on the water. Well, we, it would we be can't different. give up entirely though, can we? No. We can't say we can't open a crash in the country because you can't get insurance. We can't develop anything. We can't improve our cities. We can't do anything because maybe there'll be an insurance problem or maybe we are God I hope we're not in the situation that we just give up on, on developing anything in the country for the next 20 years White elephants problem. elsewhere are you familiar with white elephants? In the north, uh, yeah. yes, on quite big scale, uh, which brought down the assembly. Yes, so absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that would do it. I thought one. Well, there was an excellent um, piece done in the um, in the Independent yesterday on doctors and solicitors colluding. Now I can see Irene <laughs> bristling away there. This reporter went undercover. She did. She didn't get an awful lot of focus on it because the FAI was the bigger story. I mean, do you not like have to look into your collective consciences? Um. Okay. So I'm ready to lock horns with you on this one, uh, Marion. So aside, I thought, first of all, I thought that article was fascinating. So I, I, there was merit to the article, don't get me wrong. But much more interestingly, and I'm going to strip away all the stakeholders, right? So take out the doctors, the solicitors, the barristers, the PIAB, the injuries board, the insurance companies. Take them all away and just deal with the facts. There was an article written on Friday by Mark Paul, and it was entitled, it was in the Irish Times, and it was entitled Insurance Industries Compo Culture Spin is the Dodgiest Claim of All. Now, if if you read nothing else this week, I'm going to ask people to read that article because what it did was it stripped... It exonerated you? No, no, it, this isn't. So this is my very point. It's not about exonerating anybody. This, the insurance companies are spinning us the biggest fake news story of this decade. That's the only way I can put it. And I take that away from all the stakeholders. Right. I'm not... I actually don't do personal injuries. I do very little of them. In fact, I deal in criminal law. So if there's fraudulent claims, all the better for me personally. Um, but what they, what they basically were saying is that the figures of claims are down. So the court statistics, that's what I'm saying. Take away anyone else. The court statistics, independence. At, we used to have a judge on the bench who would say he only deals in ascertainable facts. This is a fact. The claim numbers are down. The awards are down. The only thing that has increased are A, the premiums for us, i.e. the purchaser, and the profits of the insurance company. So the insurance companies, um, was it in 2017? I'll give you the figure now because it came out. The, in 2017, made 227 million in profit. And aside from that, what I'm going to say is that there's actually three big inquiries going on with the insurance industry at the yeah, minute. Yeah, but can I ask you a question? If you take that story, and I'm not going to go into any more detail on it, because I don't have time. If they're actually leaving the country, <coughs> which they say they are, in the crash world, they're leaving. Well, th- what they're saying basically is that it's costing, it's co- for local businesses or for small businesses, it's costing too much 
to get insurance. That's what's actually the difficulty. But the reason for that is because there's there's a, f- a very few, I think is it 16 or 17 companies that have a monopoly here, which is what leads me to what I was saying. There's three inquiries. One is an EU competition law inquiry. One is anti-competitive behaviour and the other is differential pricing. The bottom line is we are all as citizens obliged if we want to drive a car, we have to have insurance. Yeah. That means the insurance companies have us over a barrel in terms of this is something we have to have if we want to go right. on the road. And when you mention insurance, I think of Sean Quinn and there was a, a story today that the company has allowed him keep the company cars. But he has to pay his tax. But he has God to pay him. his tax. <laughs> and insurance, and that will include the 2% for Quinn Insurance. Now, very briefly, it didn't get yes. coverage today and I know you feel very strongly about it. And it was that case that was in the High Court um, about the man who was in completely inappropriate care and uh, Mr Justice Kelly nearly blew a gasket. Yes, and I have to say it's, it's one of those times where I I was just, I was so proud actually um, of the judiciary of, of Mr Justice Kelly for his comments that he made. What he has done with this particular case, so this was this was an, an, an older gentleman who has been in the high dependency mental health unit in Mountjoy for a year essentially and on very, I say, trivial matters. He had been in a, as I understand it, he was in the bathrooms of a shopping centre and security staff went to escort him out and there was an assault charge leading to that. Um, And it was a a minor assault. It was a Section 2 assault, so a very minimal kind of an encounter. But what Mr Justice Kelly has drawn attention to is that this is not the only instance where we have meant and predominantly men suffering with mental health difficulties who are caught between a rock and a hard place. This man has been in Mountjoy for 12 months because he's there's nowhere else for him to go. He needs treatment. And I've had a number of these cases. And I'm actually, the reason I was delighted to see that Mr Justice Kelly had drawn attention to it is because most criminal cases, which is where you would encounter these individuals, yes. are dealt with in the district court and then sometimes the circuit court, depending on how severe they are. So the district court judges are seeing these all of the time. So our cur- current you district. say this is nearly at epidemic level. Absolutely. So uh, Dr. Conor O'Neill, who's a cr- consultant forensic psychiatrist attached to the CMH, was involved in a case with me not that long ago. And I actually spoke to him outside the court for almost an hour. And his own words were, this is the Magdalene laundries of our time. He said, that is how bad and scandalous this is. And we actually have cases. So I, I'm up in Louth predominantly. But Judge McKiernan is our sitting judge at the minute. And she has actually asked some of the practitioners to write to Justice Kelly and inform him that that this is actually not in any way exceptional, but that it's much more commonplace in the district court at the grassroots level, where where there's nowhere for these people to go. They're so and mentally ideally, unwell. Ideally, where where should they go? What well, the legislation, as well intended as it is, says that they should go to the CMH, which is the central mental hospital. Yeah. We have one place in the entire country. It has 84 beds. There are 12 prisons. So that means there are 84 beds for anybody with any kind of mental disorder as per the Mental Health Act. That's just not sufficient, particularly where mental health is declining all the time. There needs to be a step down facility. That's that's what myself and Dr O'Neill actually had. were calling it. People are discharged into their local psychiatric facilities, which aren't secure, so they can walk out of them. And if you're mentally unwell or you're suffering from a psychotic episode or schizophrenia, you aren't in a position to understand that you need to stay in the hospital and take your medication. And when they walk out the door, there's nothing to keep them. There's nothing to keep them there to get the treatment they need. So there needs to be a, a middle place, essentially, that isn't as high secure as Dundrum, but that can facilitate these individuals who need much more hospital-related care than actually 
to, to sit in Mount Joy for 12 months like it's 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 horrendously tragic and and I think Dr O'Neill hit the nail on the head it is going to be it like it this is go only going to get bigger that's all I can say because what Justice Kelly has seen in the high court has been happening in the district courts for years and years and there's no there has been no solution and it, it is it's the Magdalene laundry of our day so so what is the solution the solution is that we need it. We need a middle facility. Okay. Um. That's that's the long and short of it. Yeah. Rather than it being the local psychiatric centre where you or I would go if we were having you know difficulties with our mental health, n- not the extremities of a psychotic episode or schizophrenia or or some of those much more severe mental disorders. Right. They need secure. They need secure care, but they don't need to be housed in isolation in a high dependency unit. Clover Hill has a wing, a D- D2 wing for mental, mentally vulnerable prisoners is what it's called. They're operating over capacity. So what you have is mentally unwell individuals sharing cells with other mentally unwell individuals, sleeping on the floor. And I mean, there, w- there was a case very recently um, that, that will end up... Well, it may or may well, not end up... Well, if it's up, you just it won't go there. No, but... Uh, I suppose it, it creates difficulties in the prison environment where you have so many mentally unwell people right. being kept in close quarters okay. with one another. OK, I knew you wanted uh, to give that coverage today. Thanks, so uh, thank you very much in that, Irene. And we will take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, I just want to read this out before we move on. This is a texter saying to us, cervical check saved my life. I was diagnosed with cervical cancer following a routine smear. I had no symptoms and had cervical check not existed, I would not have gone for screening. I would encourage all women to continue to use this service. Well, obviously it's worked uh, brilliantly for her. Now... We're joined in studio by David Moore of Astronomy Ireland uh, and they're holding their Christmas lecture tomorrow in Trinity College, Dublin. And they've somebody coming over to talk about Ireland's role in proving Einstein's general theory of relativity, no less. Tell me more. It's, It's even more interesting than that because it's how Einstein became famous. There were lots of other great scientists around the turn of the 20th century. They did work on quantum mechanics, and which sounds very esoteric, but it's the stuff that makes the transistors in your smartphones work. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, and some of them got Nobel Prizes, but they're not household names. And the reason Einstein is famous, and there's a very nice Irish link we'll be talking about at the lecture tomorrow night, is that he predicted that... Uh, that Newton, whose theory had reigned for 200 years beforehand, was wrong and that this new theory of general relativity was right. And this was just at the end of the First World War. So this, the Germans and the English weren't getting on well at all after yes. that. Anything German uh, was poo-pooed. Uh, so for the English to actually prove that a German scientist was right and an uh, uh, English scientist was wrong, the great Isaac Newton, was a huge story at the time. And it catapulted Einstein to international stardom. It was front page of the newspapers, bit because of the science. It was a great theory. He got the Nobel Prize for it, after all. Uh, uh, well, for some of his work. Yeah. And 
the fact that it was the Germans being uh, overturning the Englishman is what really made him famous, and that's why we all know about Einstein. Today. And what, what connection is there with us? Well, the eclipse expedition that went to see an eclipse in South America and Western Africa was organised by partly by the Royal Irish Academy and also uh, by Eddington in uh, Britain, and they <coughs> went. One of the teams went to Brazil. And they took some Irish-made components with them. In fact, there's a thing called a celostat, which is a mirror that aims the, the light from the sun into your telescope. So you don't have to move a big bulky telescope around because they wanted to measure the starlight arcing around the sun very accurately. It was at the limit of the technology of the time. So the Irish built that. It was made in Rathmines, in fact, by the company of Grubb Parsons, who were originally from Burr, where we have the world's biggest telescope, beautifully right, restored yeah. recently. Yeah. And uh, also as a lens as, as well, which is called the Einstein lens, and that'll actually be on display. Our friends in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies are bringing it along tomorrow night for everyone to see, because this year is the 100th anniversary of that 1919 eclipse. So there's two nice pieces of equipment linking in. Without them, the, the, uh, the measurements couldn't have been done that accurately. So we have a very proud heritage in making Einstein famous. So we made Einstein. Effectively, yes. If those <laughs> lenses and celestats all know that? <laughs> didn't, and, and didn't exist, we might not be here today talking about them. And how could they tell who was right? I mean, I, we all studied Newton in school. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do Newton for what? Uh, leaving certificate. But yeah. when you get to that first university, you start to learn about the theory of, of relativity, the special theory and the general uh, theory, which is much more complicated. And the general theory deals with gravity and accelerations. And uh, if you look at the way starlight should bend, the way Newton predicted it, it would be one tiny amount. But if you look in general relativity, it'd be twice that. So that was a nice, simple test. If it's twice the effect that Newton said, and Einstein is right, Newton's wrong. Um, to be fair to Newton, he's not quite wrong. It's just in very extreme circumstances, the rel theory of relativity turns out to be the accurate one. And Newton's, if you like, is the first approximation. So it's measuring how much the stars were out of place uh, is all they really had to do. And there have been lots of other tests since. For instance, if you found your way here today with SatNav, the GPS satellites we use, if we didn't allow for the theory of general relativity, uh, over the course of a day, your position would be out by about 10 kilometres because the clocks on those satellites, 20,000 kilometres sure above the Earth. you've used in Dublin recently. <laughs> <laughs> their, uh, their, their, their clocks are actually going, uh, is it slower or faster? I think their one's going slower. Uh, no, we're going slower down here on the Earth because we're close to the Earth's centre, so we have more gravity down here. Gravity Isn't slows time Isn't there a military up. decision between east and west on messing up those clocks. Yeah, originally, uh, you might be thinking of the James Bond movie where one of the villains wants to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but originally it was a military system and they deliberately fudged the, the signal so that you couldn't get an accurate position. That, that's what I mean, yeah. But they was realising it was so commercially useful that they turned that off and now it's available to the whole world. But it was originally a $10 billion military project. But the Europeans, and Ireland's a member of the European Space Agency, are building their own a more accurate satellite navigation system called Galileo. There are 27 satellites, so 28 satellites. There were 27 member states anyway. And each satellite's named after a child in each country. Adam is the guy from Swords who we um, we did a competition with Don Conroy for a painting competition to name a satellite after. And this kid in Swords has got a billion dollar or a billion euro. We're Europeans. Billion euro satellite named after him. That's not bad. I no, guess. it's not bad. Isn't it? yeah. Nice, piece, nice claim to fame. Yeah. Did I waste my time studying Newton? 
was no, just going uh, to say there'll be a clatter of Leaving Cert students in tomorrow morning <laughs> to their teachers going, you're teaching us stuff that we don't even need and it's not even right. And I heard it on Marion yesterday. <laughs> well, to a, as I said, to a first approximation, uh, it's actually a very accurate approximation, Newton is right, it's only when speeds get crazy uh, that the relative, relativistic effects have to be taken in. So even in the solar system where the planets were moving at 60,000 more, 70,000 miles an hour around the sun as we speak, uh, and even that speed is not really significant, but Mercury, which is three times closer to the sun than I was going around even faster, uh, it's, it, it turned out its positions, they already had measured them around the time of Einstein and realised there's something wrong with the orbit of Mercury. And again, the theory of relativity explained that. The base of the planet Mercury gets heavier because it's going around the sun so fast. And that affects the way the gravity works and the way you predict its position. Right. Is there much interest in Ireland in astronomy at the moment? The biggest in the world. Astronomy Ireland is the world's most popular astronomy club. And without There's modesty <laughs> for you. <laughs> without tooting our own horn too much, it's because the Irish invented space exploration. We give talks in schools all over the country. I'd hate to see if you did try to toot your horn. <laughs> Well, I'll toot all of our horns even even louder because Newgrange is the oldest astronomically aligned building anywhere in the world. It's probably 6,000 years ago. It's not quite that old. People were studying the stars and they built this 200,000 ton monument without a single metal tool. That's probably like a contractor today building at least a major town, if not all of Dublin. Why did they take that trouble? Or children's hospital. That puts or children. <laughs> or several children's hospitals. Mead, so, you know, it's not ideal. They built it in Mead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they probably get planned permission there easier <laughs> the um that puts the pyramids in the down oh, yeah. the pyramids are a thousand years younger than newgrange you hear all these documentaries about stonehenge and the pyramids they're nearly a thousand years after stonehenge the irish were doing it first and i already mentioned the telescope in burr in county offaly that was the biggest telescope in the world when lord ross finished it in 1845 just as the famine was starting in fact he gave up using it to help with famine relief but for about 50 years people astronomers from all around the world came to ireland despite our weather to look through this giant telescope and only in the early 20th century were modern telescopes with photography developed which have gone on yeah. to, to to take over now but even today it was, it was a great leap of imagination wasn't it oh yes i mean at the time bigger telescopes had been built and they were trying to figure out when we build a bigger telescope, some of these fuzzy objects we see in the sky turn out to be made of stars. And if we built big enough telescopes, would we find they're all made of stars? And some people thought there were actually other galaxies, island universes, as they called them, uh, which, of course, we all know now there, there are and they're expanding throughout the universe. But back then, they were helping to, to figure out where our place in the cosmos. And even now, Ireland's just joined the European Southern Observatory. And that gives us access to the biggest telescope the world has ever built. The Americans trying to build one, not as big as the Europeans, but we Europeans are going to build a, a bigger one than they are anyway. It should be online in about five years. It's costing over a billion euros, and Irish scientists will have access to it. Great news for young kids, because our economy now is based on science and technology. 60% agriculture around the 10% mark. Even the construction industry at the height of the Celtic Tiger was only 20%. So science is very important. That's what we love telling kids in, in, in schools. And astronomy is a great, great gateway okay. science into a great career. Tell me about it tomorrow. It's in Trinity College Dublin in the Fitzgerald building, which has a nice link to the relativity we'll explain tomorrow. 
Uh, everyone is welcome, although it's in the university and it's being given by Professor Peter Coles. It's not an academic lecture. It's for the general public who want to know more about Einstein, the historical expedition. It'll be great fun. There'll be that Einstein lens as well to see. There's even a Christmas party afterwards if you can come along. My goodness. Go to our website, astronomy.ie. You'll get more details, the exact building it, in Trinity. It's your lack of fun. confidence about all of this. Well, we've been doing this for a while. We're 30 years old next right, year, yeah. so we should have got okay. it right by now. Is it free entry? No, there's a, a charge of children, uh, students, OAPs, five euros and ten euros for adults. OK, listen, thank you very, very much indeed for coming in. And indeed, thank you to everybody who contributed to the programme today. Uh, that's all we've time for. Katrina McFadden and Michelle Brown are the researchers. Emily Hurley was our broadcast coordinator. Gar Duffy on sound. Owen McLaughlin produced. And the series producer is Rachel Graham. That's all from us for today. And from all of us here, a very good day to you.